Good morning, friends. So, first, a little family time. We had a baby. It's my life group. This is Gabriel James Ford. We love him. Uh, he's getting bigger and fatter by the second. Uh, this is a couple days in. This is, uh, I think this is day one, maybe, one or two. And then now he's headed more in this direction. If we can get the next picture. There he goes. He has this little double chin. I keep telling my wife that the second chin is my favorite chin. Uh, and so we've been enjoying him. We've been uh, getting used to a new mode of being in the universe. Uh, and so we wanted to shout out to all of you guys and appreciate you guys, especially our life group, for taking such good care of us over the last couple of weeks and keeping us fed and loving on us. But we also wanted to uh, let you know that you guys lied to us, and we've been telling everybody, okay? Because as we approached the due date, people said over and over again, hey, you're going to lose sleep. You're going you're to get up a lot in the middle of the night. You're going to get up over and over again. You're going to wake up a lot in the middle of the night. And I keep telling everybody that that's... That's misleading because it makes it seem like sleep is the default posture and that you get interrupted from time to time. What would be a more honest portrayal is that you will be up 24-7 and that from time to time in the middle of the night, you'll doze off for a couple of seconds. And so we wanted to let you know that we've been telling everybody that you guys lied to us. We'll accept apologies in the form of Keurig K-cups and Starbucks gift cards, Okay. Help us stay awake so we can do some parenting. We're going to finish our uh, Can I series with Can I Watch R-Rated Movies. This one is an interesting one uh, for a number of reasons. One, because it applies to everybody in a way that the other ones don't. Everybody in here has probably watched a movie even in the last, I don't know, hopefully not in the life group, but like the last 24 hours, 48 hours. So this is something that we're all doing, but also the scripture doesn't explicitly address movies per se, right? Because movies are a fairly new thing. And so we are challenged with what is the Christian challenge of bringing the wisdom and the requirements of the Bible to bear on new frontiers, right? And so there's a, there's a challenge there. And as we, as we approach the question of can I watch R-rated movies, really the question underneath the question is what matters when it comes to a movie? Is it the rating or is it something else? And the other complication is we're not really talking about one thing, right? It's not can I do this one thing. Really the question is can I watch that one? 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 So it makes this whole conversation a little bit complicated, but in dealing with that complexity, I think it will actually afford a really good landing place for this series, a really good way to tie up our can I conversations. But before we start talking about what the boundaries are and what matters when it comes to something like movies, it's sort of like the, the week that we dealt with sex. Before you can know and appreciate the boundaries that there are on human sexuality, you have to know what sex is for, Right? And so likewise, when it comes to stories, art, movies, before we can start to set the boundaries on a thing like movies, we have to know what movies are for. And maybe that sentiment sounds strange to your ears because as Americans, typically we just think of all of the creative arts, including movies, as primarily for a combination of self-expression on one hand and entertainment on the other hand. Because we're American and we think everything is about self-expression and entertainment. And certainly these are our God-given, listen, God-given powerful mediums that we have for self-expression and for entertainment. So they do serve that purpose, but also 
there's something else that's at play there that sometimes we are slower to recognize that may have been more familiar uh, to more ancient eyes. And so what I want to do today is I want to approach this topic sort of like Paul on Mars Hill, where uh, he wants to reason with this group of people instead of uh, first reaching for what belongs to Christianity, and instead of first reaching for the gospel and the Christian scriptures, instead, first he reaches into what is kind of common public domain, what belongs to all of humanity, to the thinkers of the day, to lead them to the truth of scripture. And so I want to do that this morning, and I want to start with a, a rather lengthy quote from our man Plato, who is one of the greatest thinkers in human history, has influenced Western thought in ways that you cannot overestimate. And in his republic, he's having this conversation about uh, what it is to have a good state, what it is to have a good society. And so as he's chopping it up about what a good society is, eventually he turns his sight to the arts. What role do the arts, and throughout our conversation so that we can reach back past 1920, whenever the first movie was invented, and to grab for more ancient wisdom, I will use the words movies, stories, art, depictions, almost synonymously for our purposes. But he turns his attention to the arts and says, what role does that have in our society, in our state? And I'll paraphrase in places where I think he can get a little bit choppy, but he says essentially this. He asks, are artists also to be prohibited from exhibiting vice, and intemperance, and meanness, and indecency in sculpture and building and other creative arts, i.e. movies? And is he who cannot conform to this rule of ours to be prevented from practicing his art in our state, lest the taste of our citizens be corrupted by him? We would not have our guardians grow up amid images of moral deformity, as in some poisonous pasture, and there they browse and feed until they silently gather a festering mass of corruption in their own soul. Let our artists rather be those who are gifted to discern the true nature of the beautiful and graceful. Then will our youth dwell in the land of health amid fair sights and sounds and receive the good in everything and beauty shall flow into the eyes and ear like a health-giving breeze from a pure region and insensibly draw the soul from the earliest years into the likeness and sympathy with the beauty of reason." Long quote, dense quote, basically what Plato is saying is that a good society is made up of people who do good, in part because they are good, in large part because they have been fed on and have breathed in good stories. Stories that are concerned with, with rightly discerning good and beauty and putting people in pursuit of those things. So we still have to haggle, we still have to kind of argue about, well, what do you mean when you say goodness and beauty? And what does the scripture mean? And what does this group mean? And so we still have to fight about some of those things. But what we're taking away is that Plato is saying that while art is a powerful means, while movies are a powerful means of self-expression and entertainment, one of their primary capacities, and we would say from the scriptures, a God-given capacity, is to form people. And so he would say, maybe Plato would ask us, if you see, uh, if you see ugliness or meanness or vice, or intemperance in your society, might that be the product of stories that are not fulfilling their purpose? And so he's saying that stories shape who we are as individuals and as a society. How? One more quote might be helpful. This quote is from a man named Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. I was very nervous about not doing justice to his name. I mean, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry does not... 
I would be offended, so I want to do it justice. This guy's name is Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, and uh, he was the author of the children's story, The Little Prince, maybe some of you read in school or have in your homes. A uh, popular book got translated into many different languages, and he wrote this quote. He, he's credited with this quote that uh, maybe you've heard before. It's fairly popular. He says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them too long for the endless immensity of the sea. Now, if you're going to build a ship, you will absolutely need people. You need to collect wood. You'll need tasks and work. But what he's saying is if you really want people to build you a ship, teach them too long for the sea, and they will build whatever they can, however they can, to get themselves there, right? Two realities that are reflected in the combination of these two quotes. The first one is you are primarily driven by your longings by your desires, by your loves. Above anything that you're committed to, above anything that you are commanded to do, that what drags you, what pulls you through life like a tractor beam or the force of gravity are the things that you love. And we all know that this is true because anytime that there's a, a discrepancy or a battle between your, your mind and your heart, your, your beliefs and your desires, the path of least resistance is always to go with your desires. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't use your other faculties to master that and to change that and to go in another direction. That just means that when we talk about giving in, giving into that, that pulling force, that tractor beam, what we are not talking about is giving into your beliefs. We're talking about giving in to your desires because you're primarily driven by that. There's a series of really typically funny, typically clean, I hope, I think, cartoons uh, that float around on social media from time to time. It's this heart in this brain, right? And this is depicting what we just talked about, that there's this fork in the road and the brain is looking down the path that leads to adult responsibilities, saying, this way, heart. Meanwhile, the heart is chasing a butterfly down the path that leads to utter nonsense, right? And of course, it's funny because it's true that there are often times where we know we should go in one direction, but our heart goes in a different direction and the path of least resistance is always to follow our hearts because you are primarily driven through life by your longings, your loves, and your desires. That's reality number one that we see in Plato and Antoine. Reality number two is that your longings can be taught. That you can be taught desire. How can you be taught desire? How can you be taught to love something? Go back to Plato. Art, stories, depictions, movies. That the stories that we tell and consume form us into a particular kind of person and into a particular kind of people by teaching us too long for any number of things, whether it's the endless immensity of the sea. Don't you think you can read a story, read a book, watch a movie that trains you to long for the sea, the beauty and the majesty of the sea in a way that nothing else could? Whether it's teaching you to long for that or a particular kind of romantic relationship, whether it's teaching you to long for freedom from constraints or any other number of pictures of the good life. That's what stories have the power to do. I saw two Kohl's commercials last night where at the end of the commercial, it says, the tagline was, that's the good stuff. Now, commercials do that intentionally in short form, but that is the capacity of all stories to look at you and say, that's the good stuff. Do you realize that there's probably precious one, maybe two places where you can point and say that you chose to desire something. You, you don't choose your desires. You don't wake up and say, today I think I'm going to want this. 
If so, we would all have a, a deep passion, a deep longing for things like vegetables and exercise and to watch documentaries instead of reality TV because we know those things are good, but you don't decide what you want. Now, you may look and say, no, I can remember a specific day or a specific time where I said, I'm going to go after that person or I'm going to pursue that job. That may be true. You may have chosen the pursuit, but even before you decided to pursue, that longing had already taken root in your heart. When did you decide your favorite food was going to be your favorite food? When did you decide your dream job would be the job that you want most? Right? We don't choose the things that we desire. Often our desires are birthed in us, and one of the vehicles that primarily gets us there are stories, depictions, and art. That's what Plato was talking about. That's what Antoine was talking about. A long time before Antoine said it, a long time before Plato said it, the author of the Proverbs said this in Proverbs 27, 19, as in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects man. That when you look into a person, you peel back all the things they talk about, all the things that think are interesting, and you look at the, the longings, the desires, the, 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 the heart of that person, that's who they are. Right? Again, in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, it says, Above all else, guard your heart. Protect your heart because everything you do flows from your heart, which is the center of your will and the center of your desires. What is that saying? You are driven through life primarily by your longings, your desires, and your loves. So not only does Scripture acknowledge that first reality, that we are primarily driven by our desires, but it also acknowledges that second reality, which is the, the role that stories have in giving birth to those desires, to teaching us to desire. And I can point to a couple of passages uh, that would be good proof text to say, see right here it says this and this way. But that would be to miss what is assumed all over Scripture because Look at what Scripture is. At the center of the Bible, there is this one reality. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. That is the center of the Bible. Over and over again, you come back to it, and Jesus says, if you get that one thing right, you, you, you've got it all. You've mastered all of it. At the center of Scripture is a longing, a love, a desire. And even as Christians, people who are, are people of faith and are trying to follow Christ and are trying, to, trying to, to know God more deeply, are committed to the things of God, even at times we look at that command and think, ah, I, don't know if I, I don't know if I love him the way I ought. I don't know if I really love him. I, I want to want to, to love him. I, I, I believe in him. I follow him. But do I really love him as much as I ought? And then you look at, okay, well, where does the help come from? What has God given us to help us love him? How does the scripture begin? The scripture begins not with thou shalt not, but within the beginning, God. This is assumed all over scripture that the center of scripture is this love for the Lord God. And to that end, God has given us a story. It's not primarily a list of commands. You can, you can scoop up all the commands in scripture in a precious few pages. He's given us a story that reveals the character of God and his mighty deeds so that that love can start to be birthed in you. I'm getting way ahead of myself, but that's the good part, and so I need to, to jump ahead a little bit. So we have these two realities that Antoine points us to, that Plato points us to, that has been stated in Scripture a long time before, assumed in the very form of Scripture, love of God, story to get you there. And so we have these two realities that you're primary driven, primarily driven by your longings, and that stories can teach you to love and to long. 
And those two realities also reveal two problems. The first one is a heart problem, that your longings drive you, but very often they drive us places that we do not want to go. That's what we call temptation, right? Where you look, and, and you may be committed to one thing. You may be absolutely committed to things like kale and acai berry, if that's how you say that, uh, and walnuts and other superfoods, right? You might know that a picture of the good life is diet and exercise, and you're committed to those things, but then that Hardee's commercial comes on, right? And they don't make a single argument in those commercials. It's just a white backdrop, and then they just let the burger drop and flop. It's just game over, right? That you might be committed to one thing, but very often your desires pull you in directions that even are against what you're committed to, right? And that's a, that's a funny example. But many of us could probably point to places in our lives where we look and we say, gosh, I, I'm, I'm after that. I want to be about that. But it seems like everything in me, the center of me, this, this tractor beam that pulls me through life, it seems like my desires are headed in a completely different direction. I want to I be kind to that person. I want to want to be kind to that person, to be patient. But every time they open their mouth, I'm just, right? You may be utterly committed to your spouse, but from time to time, your, your longings maybe draw you in a different direction, make you long for the wrong person, make you long for freedom, something other than your spouse. And so we have, in the world of this, these two realities, we have these two problems. The first one is a heart problem, that we desire the wrong things, that our longings drive us sometimes in the wrong direction. The prophet Jeremiah put it this way in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So we're driven by our longings, but oftentimes in the wrong direction. On the other hand, stories can teach our desires, but we live in a world of bad stories. And not, and not necessarily uh, bad by artistic standards and stylistic, but bad by the standard that Plato mentioned. That very often, uh, the stories that we tell and consume don't intentionally shape our hearts in the direction that they should go so that they recognize what's good and beautiful. Instead, very often, the stories that we tell give expression, give expression to what is naturally in our hearts, which we already said is, is very often jacked up, and then tells us to follow that heart, to be true to your heart. But that thing, that thing is gross. There's crazy stuff in there. And so we have these stories that we live in, in a world where already our, our hearts play tricks on us, lie to us more than we'd like to admit. We live in a, in a world where the stories that we consume, although there are often good elements, there was a, there was a series of like, I, I, I didn't say this at the other two services, but there was a series of a few years where Will Smith was dropping movies that just made me like, oh, I'm not doing enough in the world, you know, just like pursuit of happiness, and he's, you know, making a way for his son in the world, and I am legend, and he's trying to, like, human race, and it's, you know, what, like seven pounds or whatever it's called, or he's being all self-sacrificial, and just every time I left the movie theater, oh my gosh, I need to, oh, I spent too much time on myself, you know? And so it's not to say that there's, you know, all movies are bad, but oftentimes it's, it's the meat and the bones, right? They're the things that are good, but things that desperately needed to be picked out, things that lie to us about what the world is like and point our, our longings and our loves in the wrong direction. And in a world of bad hearts and broken stories, the gospel offers itself as a, as a newer, truer, orienting story. That's what I mean by that. Out of all the stories that we consume, there's probably no type of story that changes the way that we live in the world 
than a news story, right? You can watch 100 episodes of Friends, and eventually that will shape you into a certain type of person in the way that the, the Proverbs and uh, Antoine and Plato were talking about. But one news story will change your plans for tomorrow, right? And that's exactly what the gospel is. It's not, it's not good advice. It's not primarily a, a list of requirements that God has once uh, fr- from you, but primarily it's an announcement. It is good news of what God has already accomplished. It's the good news that you don't have to be dragged around by an unruly heart. And the story that that gospel is the climax of is itself the thing that starts to, to, to do that work already. In the gospel, we have the announcement that God looks out into a creation that's broken by sinners who reject him and choose to long for other things, who choose the the creature over the creator. And instead of just closing the book on that story, he, he, as the author of life, wrote himself into the story in the person of Jesus Christ and paid the cost necessary so that your story and my story can still have a happy ending. That, that, that he's making all things new, and that means, as Tolkien put it, that one day he will make every sad thing come untrue through faith in his son, right? And so that, that story already starts to, as it, as it works, points our affections and our longings in the, the right, in the right direction, but it offers itself as a way to tell the truth about the world, as a way of making sense of the world. This is what C.S. Lewis meant when he said that I believe in Christianity the way I believe in the sun. Not only that I can see it, but that by it, I can see everything else. And so that as you step into that story, if you embrace the, the Christian scriptures, this, this gospel announcement that it's the climax of, that, that if you come in and embrace that story, start to live in that story, start to encounter that God, start to live as though the, the world that's presented in scripture is the world as it is, you will start to make sense of things that you never did before that you'll actually start to become more of who you were made to be because you'll understand yourself better. We've already done that a little bit this morning, right? Talking about the heart. But the trick is, the catch is, it has to be tasted and seen. That you can't stand outside of the the story of Scripture and say, you know, no, I, I don't like that part. That part seems a little bit goofy. I don't think that's probable. I don't know if I agree with that. That if it's going to do that work of helping you to see the world for what it is, you actually have to step into the story You have to taste and see. You have to engage with that God. You have to start walking according to the Scripture. And as you do, you will start to look around and say, that makes much more sense now. That makes much more sense now. I get that now. And of course, by tasting and seeing this story, we are tasting and seeing the God who is revealed in that story, the goodness of the God who is revealed in that story. And it starts to change our our longings and rightly order them. And so if you've ever tried Christianity and abandoned it, or found it wanting, but you can't tell me the story of Scripture with Jesus Christ as its climax and focal point, then you might not have actually tried Christianity. Because Christianity is more than just a, a, a list of rules. It's more than just a, a list of moral requirements. You can, you can sum that up on a precious couple of pages. What Christianity is, is the true story of the world. The Bible is the true story of the world that gives birth to a new way of living by teaching you to long for the God who created you and redeemed you. And if you're a Christian, if you follow Christ and you find yourself with, I don't know, broken hope, a burdened heart, maybe a wandering heart, then maybe what we need more than anything else is a a fresh dip in the story, a fresh experience of that story. To pray with the psalmist, God, open my eyes that I may see 
wonderful things in your word. Because very often the thing that, that changes uh, broken hearts to blazing hearts and burdened hearts to blazing hearts is a fresh experience of that story, a fresh encounter with the God who's revealed in that story. And then once you're firmly rooted in that story, once you are, are, are being taught that love, you actually have a better vantage point to know what to do with all the other stories. Right? So a few passages that come to mind. For instance, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, Paul says, We destroy arguments and every opinion, every lofty opinion, raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Very often, as Christians, we take that passage as kind of an exhortation to keep track of what's going through our mind and to grab those stray thoughts and say, no, 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 that's not right. Hey, you calm down in there, right? And that's a good discipline for the Christian. That's a very, very good discipline for the Christian. But more of what Paul is talking about here is he's saying in our ministry, we go around. And if this gospel story, if this Bible story is the true story of the world, then over and over again, you're going to run into competing stories, competing ideas, things that raise themselves against knowledge of God. And we go around with this gospel story and this Holy Spirit power, and we break down all of those arguments. He's really talking about a little bit what we've done this morning, right? We look at Antoine, we look at Plato, and we say, hey, you know, these actually find a much neater home in the story as Scripture tells it. And Scripture told this story a lot longer before, right? And so what that, what that tells us, what that, the call that that lays on us, the idea of taking thoughts captives, of, 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 of um, showing that the deepest longings of the human heart and the thought forms of the day find a better home in Christian faith than they, ever, they do anywhere else, to, you know, as we pick out the bones and eat the meat, that means that we can't retreat as Christians from cultural products, which is always sometimes our temptation to look at what, take the, the stuff that God has made that Caesar has jacked up and say, all right, well, we're running away now, right? Because if we're going to be familiar with the, the longings of our culture, the thoughts of our culture, if we're going to actually engage with and take thoughts captive, we have to know the stories that our culture is telling because they reveal the deepest longings of their heart and the things that they're after. But that also doesn't mean that it's a free-for-all, right? Because a number of other passages also come to mind and chasten uh, that idea. One is Philippians 3. In Philippians 3, Paul is talking about people who once walked with Jesus but then fell away. And he says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. The key passage for us, this, the, for our time right now, is this one right here. Their God is their belly. That in the story of Scripture, as it tells the true story of the world, that it's, it, it reveals that we live in a world where if you're going to follow God, there will be rival gods competing for your allegiance, competing for your love, competing for your longings. And one of the primary ones that you bump into over and over again your appetites. That as you try to follow Christ, one of the things that's going to threaten to drag you off the path, that's going to compete for your longings and your loves, is your belly, your appetites. And so you have to guard against those things, right? And so you take that and you, you intersect it with a passage from Isaiah. In Isaiah 5.22, he says, Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mix, mixing strong drink. And, and so I think of those two passages, and we, we know that, that food and drink and the arts, movies, are good gifts from God according to Scripture. But we also know that we live in a culture of binge eating, binge drinking, and binge watching, right? 
So I look at those two passages. I look at the reality of a, of a rival God. I look at the threat that your appetites are to your allegiances. I think about a book by Malcolm Gladwell called The Tipping Point, I believe. I've never read it. I just hear this one idea quoted a lot. And in the book, he's talking about what it means to become a master at something, what it, what it, what it takes and what it requires to have a mastery, to become an expert at something. And what he says is there's this tipping point where you do this thing over and over again, and eventually you reach the 10,000-hour mark. And all of a sudden, it gets just easier. Something tips, and you, you just have mastered that thing, no matter what your natural skill level is. And so if you want to become a master at anything, whether it's playing the guitar or building barns, whatever it is, you need to log 10,000 hours. If you want to start today and do that in a year, you'll have to log 27 hours a day. Right? Good luck. If you want to break that up and make it a little, little bit more manageable, that means that uh, three to four hours a day, you can do it in about 10 years. And so that means that very few of us outside of our work, right, because we do, if we have the same job uh, day in and day out for a long time, you will log that number of hours, that thing, you will have a mastery of that thing. But that means outside of your work, very few of us will become masters at anything. I can think of one thing that probably every single person in the room by this standard will become a master at. Watching television. Right? And you guys see the statistics from time to time. They re-release them, how many hours a day we watch. And I wonder, even though the arts, movies are a good gift from God, even before we start talking about content, what's in them, I wonder if God wouldn't look at us and say, you know, back to the other one, and say, you know, I gave you movies as a good gift, but man, there's something woeful about being an an expert, a master, not at playing the guitar or building barns or conversing with your spouse or knowing your neighbor, but at watching television. So I wonder, maybe, 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 that's, uh, maybe that's something that we need to consider. Are we masters at something when we could log that time doing something else? Another verse that comes to mind is Philippians 4.8, that one of the things that we need to consider is uh, what we think about. And Philippians 4.8 is one of my favorite passages. It's between kind of two power passages, two coffee cup, like, you know, put them on a t-shirt passages. One has to do with praying and thanking God and asking him for help and him giving a peace that passes understanding. And right below it, there's a, pa a passage about following, imitating people who live worthy lives and the God of peace being with you. So peace sandwich, which is good because we live in a very anxious culture, right? Maybe even this week, maybe even this morning, something to be anxious about. And as he's explaining the disciplines that it, take, that it takes to become a peaceful person, even in the midst of chaos, sandwiched between those two verses, he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely and commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And so we have to ask the question, do the things that we watch help us to do this, or do they actually work against us in doing this? Do the things that we watch lead us to to think about true, honorable, lovely, just, excellent, pure, all the, the rest of the list? Or do they actually lead us in the other direction? And again, you can already start to see a problem because there's a spectrum here. If you are naturally, if you struggle with depression, you're going to have a much lower threshold here. 
You maybe shouldn't watch dark things. You maybe shouldn't watch things that will lead your mind in the wrong direction. But you know what? If you run around in your natural posture, it's kind of the, you know, happy-go-lucky, optimistic, glass-half-full, Pollyanna, glad game, I'm going to point out every silver lining and annoy the people around me type of personality, then maybe you probably have a higher threshold here. Maybe this isn't as much of a discipline for you and comes a little bit more naturally. So already we start to see, ah, I don't know. It's a little bit of a spectrum. Another concern, in, 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 in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says to run away from sexual immorality. Every other sin you do is outside of your body. This one is against your own body. And Jesus, in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, says that you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I'm telling you that everybody who looks at somebody with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. And so in light of that, if your right eye causes you to sin, Tear it out. If your hand causes you to sin, lop it off. Because it's better to walk into the kingdom dismembered than for your whole body to be thrown into hellfire. Right? And now, Jesus says, if you go home and lop anything off and say, I told you, I'm going to be very frustrated with you. Okay? Put it on ice and we'll get you there. Uh, so, Jesus, so Jesus isn't advocating for lopping off things and plucking out things. He's saying radical, in light of the fact that you're the natural enemy for your allegiance is going to be your belly, radical inconvenient sacrifice is perfectly appropriate to run away from what's sexually immoral. Whether it's metaphorically speaking, plucking out an eye, cutting off a hand, or cutting off a TV show, right? You have to to ask, do the things that you watch help you or do they hurt you in trying to run away from what's sexual, sexually immoral? And again, I, 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 uh, I am perfectly okay with special pleading for this one issue. And sometimes people get frustrated and kind of look at you funny and say, well, you know, you, you have different lines that you've drawn for like violence in movies and language in movies, but there's one boob, you cut it off. I mean, that makes sense, right? Like, lust is a sin of the eyeballs, right? Like that, that, and that we're talking about what's depicted on screen. So I think that there is a little special sensitivity that should take place here, especially in light of our rival gods being our appetites. And a, a last one, I say a last one, we could I mean, we could go for forever and ever, right? But another one that I want us to consider, in Isaiah 5.20, it says, whoa. And it's really hard to really give a sense to, to our, our, our modern Western English ears of what woe means. But it's just a desperate thing. It's, it's, just a, it's a sad, sorry, hard spot. And God looks and he says, whoa, man, woe to, to those who call evil good and good evil, that that is a terrible spot to be. Where you look at what God calls good and you say, no, that's messed up. That's small-minded. You look at what God calls evil and says, no, that's good. That's brave. That's heroic. He says, man, woe to those who call good evil and evil good, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Do the things that we watch help us, like Plato said, rightly discern what is good and what's evil? Do they train our eyes those ways? And again, another added complication because there's a difference between the content of a story and the form of a story. There is objectionable content in Scripture. You can look in Scripture and see uh, proud statements, sexual immorality, acts of violence all over the place. But again, the form of Scripture never portrays those things in such a way to say that's good. It always calls evil evil and always shows how evil leads to brokenness. It always calls good, good, and show how, shows how it reveals a good God and a flourishing path in life. And so you go back and you think, well, does that mean that if a movie or a film depicts evil but 
does it in such a way that it reveals that it's evil and that it's not a good thing, then we can watch it, right? Well, there's probably also a threshold for how much it's depicted, right? You can watch a documentary on the ills of the pornographic industry, but if they're constantly showing people at work, maybe not a good choice, right? If we're trying to run away from what's sexually immoral. So again, you, you, all that's to say, you look at all of these different considerations, and it actually makes it very, very hard to come out and produce a list, Right? And very often, that's what we want. We want the list. Okay, God, tell me what to avoid, what to go after. I'll do those things. But, but over and over again, the goal of Scripture, as it's stated in Scripture, is not to give you wisdom. The goal of Scripture is not to give you wisdom. The goal of Scripture is to make you a wise person. If you look at the Scripture, one of the easiest places to go for little nuggets of wisdom is the Proverbs. And over and over again in the Proverbs, it doesn't say that nuggets of wisdom is the beginning of wisdom. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It says that if you, if you have friendship with God, if you walk with Him, if you revere Him, if you rightly long for him, it will shape you into a wise person. And the way that the Proverbs and the rest of Scripture talks about the fool is that God himself could step out from behind the curtain and produce the list, the, the, the watch list, don't watch these movies, watch these movies, don't go to these places, go to these places, all of the do's and don'ts. And we actually have a bit of that in the Scripture, right? That God himself could come out and hand you that list, and the fool would look at that list and do one of two things, either say, nah, I disagree, or look at the list and say, yep, I think that's it, but then not have the character and the virtue and the fortitude to actually do anything with that list, to live by that list. By contrast, the wise person is presented as the person who has encountered God in such a way that they don't need a list. They just have eyes that have been trained to discern what's good and what's right, and wisdom always demands specific things from specific people in specific moments. And the wise person's been trained to see it. And so maybe, if we want to uh, paraphrase our friend Antoine from this morning, maybe if we want to live a wise life, we don't need to drum up nuggets of wisdom and a list of rules, but rather need to teach ourselves to long for the endless immensity of a good God. And that's one of the reasons why the, the, the subtitle for this entire series has been The Answer's Not the End. In part, because sometimes there aren't always pat answers. Very often we want to approach the scriptures and, and be delivered pat answers. But what God desires for you to approach the scripture and the community of faith and be formed in such a way by encountering God in his story that we see the world for what it is. Eugene Peterson said that wisdom is the art of living skillfully in God's world. That's the goal of Scripture, to tell this true story until we are people who see it for what it is. So may we immerse ourselves in that story and become that people. Amen? All right, let's pray for it. Father, these things frustrate us. We do want to live good lives, lives that are fruitful, lives that are, are, are free of brokenness. And very often what that produces is the desire for a list of do's and don'ts. We thank you for the places where you have given us that, but we also thank you that you think that there is so much dignity in being an image bearer that you would rather form us into people with God eyes than always have us obeying lists and jumping through hoops. I pray that even in this room, 
that we would be a people who give ourselves to the story of Scripture. That if there's, if there's been any dryness, if we've avoided that at all, if we, if we haven't been giving ourselves to your word, that we would, and in doing so, see everything that's beautiful about who you are, that our longings will be trained onto you in such a way that we would live more skillfully because of it. We ask you for Holy Spirit conviction and power to that end. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.